Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're so glad to have so many of you joining us here today at the Fairbanks Center. My name is Michael Sony, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as the director of the Fairbanks Center for China Studies at Harvard University. And it is my real pleasure to welcome all of you from around the world to the 2021 Charles Neuhauser Memorial Lecture. This lecture series was established uh, in 1988 in honor of Charles Neuhauser, or Charlie, as he was known, class of 1953 at Harvard College. It was established through the generosity of Charlie's brother, Paul, class of 1955. Uh, we are so grateful for, uh, for uh, Paul's generous uh, endowment of this lecture series. Uh, Paul, his uh, wife, Mary, and other members of the family are here in the audience today, and we're very, very happy to have you here and for your continued support of the series that bears Charlie's name. Uh, Paul, Mary, it's, it's at this time of year, it's always such a pleasure to, to host you here at Harvard. And I hope that we will be uh, seeing one another in person soon, as soon as conditions allow. Uh, Charlie worked at the Central Intelligence Agency from 1958 until 1981. In the 1960s, he came back to Harvard to spend a year at uh, the Fairbanks Center's predecessor, the Center for East Asian Research. This was at the height of China's cultural revolution. And Charles' goal here at Harvard was to work with our scholars to try to make sense of what was going on, to understand why Mao seemed to be trying to tear down everything that had been built since 1949, and then to take that knowledge back to the US intelligence community where it could inform policymaking and deliberation. Charles, Charlie's approach blended scholarship and practice, and we've sought to continue that tradition with the lecture series founded in his honor. Uh, our speaker today and I were just talking about the extraordinary range of luminaries who have given the Neuhauser lecture over, for, over the last 30 years, uh, including most recently, our first speaker from China, uh, Wang Jisu, who spoke last year. Uh, we've had many luminaries, as I mentioned, but today's speaker truly epitomizes the spirit of Charlie and the spirit of the Neuhauser Lecture. Evan Medeiros is Penner Family Chair in Asia Studies and the, the Kling Family Distinguished Fellow in US-China Studies at Georgetown. Uh, he previously served for six years on the staff of the National Security Council as Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia and then a special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia under the Obama administration. In that role, he managed some extremely high profile interactions between the US and China, including the Obama-Xi summit of 2014. And in addition to his uh, expertise and his scholarship, he also brings, uh, I think probably a unique uh, degree, certainly an unusual degree of personal interaction with the top leaders of the two countries. Uh, before joining the White House, uh, Dr. Medeiros also worked for seven years as a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. He earned his PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics uh, and Political Science, a pair of master's degrees from Cambridge and from SOAS, and a BA in analytic philosophy from Bates College. So to all the undergrads in the, uh, in the audience, um, your your uh, uh, college major, your college concentration can lead you in all kinds of interesting uh, directions. He's the author of a number of a number of scholarly works, perhaps best known for China's international behavior, activism, 
opportunism and diversification, uh, which predates his time in the White House. Obviously, his scholarly uh, production uh, slowed during his time in the administration. I think that's probably a reassuring thing uh, and was probably as much a, a, a function of uh, being busy as as of the rules of the of the White House, but he has of course returned to publishing since leaving the uh, uh, the administration and returning to academe, including most recently two uh, articles in Foreign Affairs in March and July of this year, uh, to which both of which I heartily recommend to you. Uh, Dr. Medeiros will speak for uh, about forty five minutes, leaving plenty of time for a moderated Q and A discussion. Uh, please use the, we are in a, um, a webinar format, so please use the um, Q&A function to uh, raise your questions, and I will uh, um, transmit them to our speaker. We will try to get through as many of your questions as possible. Uh, we may not be able to get through all of them. There are about 200 of you in the room, but we shall do our best. Uh, we are at, as everyone on this call surely knows, a critical moment in US-China relations. And because of the importance of these two countries in the global order, we are at an inflection point in the history of the world. Um, I can't think of anyone I would be, uh, I would want to hear more about this critical moment, this inflection point than our speaker today. Uh, Evan's talk today will bring to bear both his academic scholarship into Chinese politics and US-China relations, and his first-hand experience at the very height of the U.S.-China policy, or U.S.-China policy making. Uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming the 2021 uh, Newhouser lecturer, Evan Medeiros. Uh, thanks very much, Michael. That was a, a very warm and generous introduction. It's a real honor to be invited uh, to give this year's lecture, uh, given the long list of luminaries, giants in the China studies field, really have preceded me. And I'm hoping that perhaps my invitation signals a creeping generational shift in the ranks of China specialists in the US, uh, which is a good thing, given the complexity of understanding uh, where China is going and where she is taking it. Uh, of course, I'm only sorry that we're not able to do this in person, um, but I'm gonna hold you to your invitation uh, to visit Harvard at some point when uh, COVID lessens so we can share a meal together and uh, dig into the content of today's speech and just talk about China more generally. Um, I also want to thank Paul and Mary Neuhauser uh, and Mike Oxenberg for conceiving of and endowing this prestigious lecture series. Um, I have to admit, I had never heard of Charlie Neuhauser before Michael invited me to do this. Uh, but I can assure you that I immediately remedied that. And I'd like to begin today's talk uh, by sharing uh, what I found out about Charlie and China. Um, and I proceeded to do this to figure out um, a little bit more about Charlie by doing what I tell all of my students not to do, which is use Google as a database. Google is not a database, um, but it is really helpful. And I learned a lot about Charlie in the process. Um, at first, I was saddened to learn that Charlie died at the young age of 55. Uh, as a newly minted 50-year-old, that is way too young, and I can only imagine how much Charlie would have contributed to our field and to our understanding if he had lived longer. Um, but I'm hoping the Fairbanks Center is able to put together 
a collection of the some 30 years of Neuhauser lectures that have been given, because I think that body of work would really, in and of itself, be an extraordinary contribution uh, to Charlie's legacy. Um, so what else did I find? Well, I scoured several declassified CIA national intelligence estimates to see if I could find evidence of Charlie, uh, but they were wiped clean. Uh, but the analytic rigor, the judicious judgments, the humility of the analysis birthed forth from the pages of these national intelligence estimates. And I can imagine the central role that Charlie would have played in promoting such a rigorous approach. Uh, so I kept looking. Uh, I found a really interesting declassified letter from Paul Neuhauser and Mike Oxenberg to Bob Gates, then deputy director of the CIA, asking for a contribution to fund this lectureship series. Now, I have no idea if Bob Gates contributed, but I certainly hope that he did. But the, the, the letter was fun to see where this lecture series started. Uh, I kept digging. I found and enjoyed uh, reading a very arcane, but nonetheless fierce, ferocious really, only in the way academics can be ferocious, debate between the late Rick Baum from UCLA and Charlie in the pages of China Quarterly in 1968, debating the four cleanups regarding Mao's anger at Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping in the early 1960s. I have to admit, I hadn't heard of the four cleanups, but um, I can assure you this was a very, very intensive debate. Um, but perhaps the best account of Charlie that I came across uh, was from the late, great Dick Solomon, who many of you will know is one of the greats of both the Rand Corporation and the National Security Council. And um, some years ago, uh, Dick was invited to do a sort of oral history of his time at the NSC, uh, run by the Brookings um, Institution. And here is what Dick said, quote, Charlie Neuhauser and I had a covert relationship. That's an intriguing way to begin a sentence. I mean, Henry, as in Henry Kissinger, did not want any of the stuff coming out of the most intimate talks, presumably with the Chinese outside of the building. And yet there was a really interesting stuff that was worthy of interpretation. The clearest example was when Mao in 1973 made disparaging remarks about women, big surprise. And you know, of course, my antenna went up. Was he disparaging Zhang Qing or what was he doing? Charlie and I had an ongoing dialogue trying to figure out a lot of this stuff and Henry never knew about it. I thought that was a pretty fun, interesting way to give texture to uh, the way in which Charlie contributed to policymaking. Having spoken with several former US government officials about their work with Charlie, there were two themes that came across time and time again in their stories. Number one, he was dogged in his effort to understand a very hard issue. Chinese politics during the Cultural Revolution and, of course, during the 1970s. Um, and secondly, Charlie's willingness to speak truth to power. So I think those two ideas are a very good frame to use in my presentation today about U.S.-China relations. Number one, understanding complexity. And number two, confronting hard truths. Because the U.S.-China relationship today 
is as complex an issue as exists in global politics. Uh, it's one in which there are also some very, very hard realities that need to be confronted. Hard realities about the nature of the China challenge, about existing and emerging dynamics in US-China relations, and perhaps most importantly, what the US should do about it. Choices, risks, opportunities. And so my remarks today are what I would tell the national security about uh, the national security advisor about the U.S.-China relationship and U.S. strategy toward China, in all of its complexity and in all of its hard truths. And now is a great time to be doing this. And by now, I mean literally today, with Biden's first virtual meeting with Xi Jinping later this evening, in just a few hours. I can think of no better time to be having this conversation about cooperation, competition, coexistence uh, in the US-China relationship. While no one meeting between leaders can change the world, this one uh, and at this time could actually make a dent in managing the complexity of the US-China relationship. So I've entitled today's lecture, Competition, Coexistence in US-China Relations, because I think it's the former two ideas that deserve greater exploration as we think about the future. My core proposition is that the objective of US strategy should be to pursue a framework of competitive coexistence. And my re remarks will proceed in the following manner. First, I'm gonna discuss the existing and emerging dynamics at the heart of the US-China relationship. What is driving these dynamics and how might they change and evolve in the future? Second, I'm going to discuss competitive coexistence by focusing on competition and specifically competitive strategies. Third, I'm going to focus on competitive coexistence, the idea of competitive coexistence, by then discussing coexistence. What does it mean in practice? And then lastly and finally, I'll conclude by sharing some ideas about the variables to watch and the issues the United States should be thinking about as it builds out its approach to managing competition. So first, regarding existing and emerging dynamics, I'll be honest, I'm quite worried. I see many behaviors that are intensifying competition, increasing risk of competition, evolving into enmity and confrontation, and minimizing shared interests and opportunities to work together. I do think we're on the precipice of a new, different, and more intense type of Cold War. While acknowledging and understanding that all, all the differences between the US-China experience and the US-Soviet experience, I use that term, Cold War, in the generic sense, originally articulated by George Orwell in 1945 as, quote, a peace that is no peace. In other words, a state of hostility short of um, armed conflict. There are four trends on my list, which I'd like to share with you today that I think capture existing and emerging dynamics in the US-China relationship. First, competition is expanding, intensifying, and diversifying. While competition has certainly almost always been in the relationship since normalization, a key point that's often forgotten in the current debate, the current level of competition has really entered a new stage. I call it broad spectrum competition in which our interests diverge more than they converge and in four areas, security, economics, technology, and now even ideology. 
To be sure, the United States and China have always competed on economic and security issues, but it's far more intensive now. China is substantially expanding its nuclear arsenal, for example, and new issues such as technology competition and ideological competition are now very operative in the relationship. Make no mistake, the US-China competition is about power and ideas. But right now I worry most about the ideological conflict and by that I mean competing ideas of governance, political and economic governance, both at home within both countries and abroad internationally. As far back as 2017, Xi Jinping talked about the China option, China's collection of governance choices. China seeks global respect and legitimacy for its governing model of, quote, socialism with Chinese characteristics, or also known as authoritarian state-directed capitalism. But, so China seeks respect and legitimacy for these, but many of the tools, technologies, and techniques it's using for such legitimization are undermining political liberalization, democracy, and even capitalism in many countries and many regions. To be sure, this competition of ideas is not ex existential like it was with the Soviet Union, but this competition over governance ideas does have an, a substantial impact in that it makes many of the other areas of competition even worse by increasing distrust and increasing the tendency toward worst case assessments on other issues in the relationship. But perhaps one of the most worrisome aspects of this broad spectrum competition, remember security, economics, technology, and ideology, is that the lines between these four are blurred and blend together, making it hard to distinguish among them, and if possible, to compartmentalize risk. Let me explain what I mean. Security competition has an economic dimension. See the US debates about supply chains and the Commerce Department's use of the entity list. Economic competition has a security dimension. See the current American debates about semiconductor supply chains and risk stemming from China's civil military inter integration. Technological competition has a security and an economic dimension as captured in many of the examples I gave above, but also look at the debates about Chinese capabilities on artificial intelligence. There is much about assisting the Chinese military as they are about civilian innovations. And lastly, ideological competition is driven by differences over economic governance, global governments, technology governance, even more specifically, China's use of advanced technologies to enable intensive political uh, control in countries such as in Myanmar are sort of facilitating and adding to the differences in ideas and political governance between the United States and China. So this blending together of all of these issues, or perhaps it's better to think about it in terms of nested sources of competition, intensifies each dimension, making, makes it, making it harder to work on any one area and increases the chance of spillover on the others. And this just contributes to the perception uh, in the United States and in China of sort of an all-encompassing competition or an all-azimuth competition. Second trend in the US-China relationship that I wanna talk about is what I call the new politics or the new domestic politics. Now, of course, domestic politics have always been there in the US-China relationship, but I fear we're entering in a period in which 
domestic politics more than international politics, a country's position in the system in the pursuit of relative gain, that domestic politics will influence the relationship more than, than international politics. Domestic politics influences how interests are defined in the US and China and which priorities are pursued. And they also impact the political space for specific policies to be pursued, both narrow, narrowing some and broadening others. And this role of domestic politics is true in both the United States and China. In the US, um, perceptions about China are rapidly deteriorating. Based on multiple recent polls, public opinion polls, unfavorability toward China is at an all-time low. For Gallup polling, it's the lowest level since 1979. For Pew, it's the lowest level since 2005 when their polls started. In Congress, there's now strong bipartisan support for seeing China exclusively as a challenge and legislating about it. No politician in the United States can be seen to be weak on China, and many want to be seen as strong and pushing back. And of course, this affects the work of the Congress. As of today, in the current Congress, there are some 320 China-related proposals. In the last Congress, the 116th, um, there were some 550 China-related bills and resolutions, right? I mean, this is double and triple the number we've seen going well back into the mid-1980s. And of course, the business community, once the strongest supporter of the relationship, is at best ambivalent about the China market, and many are broadly frustrated and feeling alienated toward China. Of course, you have to look sector by sector, and there are plenty of American companies doing business in China and making money. But the upshot is that business leaders in the United States are really unwilling to publicly defend China and the US-China relationship as they did in past periods. And there are other parts of US society beyond the business community that are feeling alienated. The US media, US civil society groups, environmental groups, and women's rights groups who, who were effectively kicked out of China when Xi Jinping passed the NGO law, and even universities and colleges, universities including Georgetown, have to think about risk and exposure to China, whether it's a STEM or a non-STEM school. American students can be detained in, in China. Chinese students studying in the US can be detained in China. CCP-linked organizations can shape campus debates. University-based scholars of China have, will have much more limited access to conduct field research in China. And most basically, professors, including myself, have to ask the question, can you teach a class over Zoom on sensitive issues to students in China and discuss those issues without putting them at risk? All of this matters because the decisions of US policymakers right now are subject to growing and greater political pressures as the domestic conversation uh, changes in the United States. Similar trends are happening in China. Under Xi Jinping, decision-making has become so centralized that policymaking is only made by a small group of people around Xi. It's unclear if policymakers reach out to scholars and experts as they did before to accurately understand US reactions to Chinese policies. Nationalism is riding high in China under Xi and she's now promoting struggle with the United States. The Chinese talk about dare to struggle as a way of thinking about the US-China relationship. The propaganda organizations in China seem to be having an outsized influence on China's policy toward the United States. 
the leadership's continued support for aggressive public diplomacy, also called wolf warrior diplomacy, is alive and well and adds to this confrontational dynamic. Wang Yi, the current um, uh, state counselor and foreign minister, continually still talks about, quote, his three bottom lines and his two lists as a way to signal to the public that the MFA, the foreign ministry, is the demander in the U.S.-China relationship and not the supplicant. Xi Jinping's own emphasis on the national security perspective sees threats emanating from the United States to political security and social stability in China, including in practices like Chinese firms listing on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And following COVID, there's a very strong domestic Chinese narrative promoting the weakness of Western democracies in responding to the pandemic and the successes of the Chinese system. These views I think are very widely held in China. So as the US-China competition intensifies, China's strategies will begin to reflect these domestic dynamics and be reflected in a variety of domestic policy choices. Look no for further than the 14th five-year plan in its desire to reduce exposure by the Chinese economy to external demand and external supply while increasing others' reliance on China, which means a very focused, selected, selective Chinese economic decoupling from the United States. Third big trend operative in the US-China relationship is what I call the new, the new dynamics. And this is a big one. These are new patterns of interaction between the US and China. Um, and all of them add to the sense of competition and increase the risk of competition blending into enmity and confrontation. Uh, dynamic number one, there's a far greater tolerance for risk and friction on both sides of the relationship. Beijing now assesses that China's rise and U.S. decline have reached an inflection point where Beijing is in a position to resist U.S. pressure and start dictating its own terms for the relationship and also the terms for global stability. Recent Chinese statements imply a confidence and an indignation about China's relative position. Reread Yang Jiechi's statement in Alaska and the litany of demands the Chinese issue for the United States in order to improve the relationship. In terms of ideas, Xi Jinping has now put forward ideas such as the global development concept and recently senior uh, Chinese Communist Party scholars and officials talk about China's, quote, whole process democracy that is superior to Western democracy. Um, and they've been highlighting that just in the last week in the discussions around the sixth plenum. So there's far greater tolerance for risk and friction on both sides of the relationship. A second dynamic is that both sides are pursuing far more openly confrontational strategies in literally every domain of the relationship. Xi Jinping has clearly been more willing to accept blowback and pushback as he has taken steps like deploying the air defense identification zone in the East China Sea in 2013, aggressive land reclamation in the South China Sea in 2014, a very uh, aggressive set of tariffs against uh, and economic sanctions against South Korea and Australia. And then, of course, there's generally the advent of wolf warrior diplomacy against a variety of countries all over the world, in particular Sweden. Now, of course, 
the tolerance for or the, the pursuit of more openly confrontational strategies is not, not just in, in China. It's, uh, the U.S. has done so, too. And you have to look no further than the Trump administration's, um, you know, myriad ways they did this in particular um, through the trade war. But my, my point here is that the tolerance for risk and the pursuit of more confrontational strategies is leading both sides to sort of push and probe each other, which I see as very, very dangerous. And this pushing and probing is often done in a very public way, which I worry could result in a crisis that spirals. Third dynamic I'm, I'm paying attention to is that there's very little sustained cooperation right now. And there's a lot of skepticism about the possibility of cooperation going forward. Um, interests, both Chinese interests and US interests would dictate some joint work on climate change, global economic stability, global health, non-proliferation, but there's really very little of it and not much of a plan going forward. Perhaps the two presidents will rectify that tonight. Fourth and final sort of new dynamic that concerns me is the fact that communication channels have atrophied across all dimensions of the relationship. This is, you know, there's really a case to be made that some of the communication channels needed to be called, uh, that they had accumulated a little too much. But I think now we've, um, we're at the other extreme where there's too few communication channels. And the problem is that the signal to noise ratio is very low and that, there are and that this increases the risk of a miscalculation. The U.S.-China relationship needs, needs clear, consistent, credible communication at the highest levels. And I worry that that's not happening. Um, now, to be fair, I and others have published that the Chinese often use dialogue and communication to play for time and advantage. And I see that as a continued risk. But I think the administration needs a plan to create an architecture of communication with China uh, and that that should be driven by our interests, our objectives, our strategies and policies. Um, but collectively, all of these dynamics, these sort of new, new dynamics, the weak communication, the lack of sustained cooperation, the tolerance for risk and friction, the pursuit of more openly confrontational strategy, strategies. The problem is that they accentuate distrust, they reduce incentives for restraint, they create opportunities for accident and miscalculation, and they diminish the ability to manage competition. All of them accelerate this process of moving toward a highly unstable form of long-term competition. Now, I want to, in thinking about the sort of four elements of, of competition, I want to finish with one that really concerns me. And that's that the traditional buffers and stabilizers in the relationship are really decaying and are quite inoperative. Um, traditionally, or I should say historically, buffers and stabilizers have been an important part of the relationship. Some have functioned as speed bumps, some have functioned as fire breaks on a relationship that constantly experiences differences in volatility. But the importance of these buffers and um, stabilizers is they have done a pretty good job of preventing these differences, disagreements, and volatility from leading to a long-term break in the relationship. But the problem is, is that right now, many of them are fading insignificant or inoperative. 
political leadership in both Washington and Beijing has been essential to the stability of the relationship. Historically, leaders have played a very important role at key points um, as sources of crisis management. At different times and differing degrees, U.S. and Chinese leaders have stepped in to steady their relationship, most notably in 1979, in 1982, in 1989, in 94, 99, 2001, and 2014. Economic ties in the business community. The U.S. business community has gone from broadly supportive and vocal about the bilateral relationship to being mixed and largely silent. U.S. firms have become very frustrated about doing business in China and also about the loss of intellectual property and the unlevel playing field. U.S. technology firms in particular um, are effectively banned from China. And even in recent weeks, American companies such as Yahoo and LinkedIn have announced that they're leaving China. So as a result, the business community is no longer united in its defense of the economic relationship. And many have become uh, advocates of greater investment controls and greater export controls. And I would expect greater fissures to open up even more within the business community. In terms of stabilizers and buffers, a common one historically, especially in the 1980s, was that shared threats and common challenges have kept the U.S.-China interests sufficiently aligned. Prominent examples include our work to balance Soviet power in the 80s uh, against counterterrorism after 9-11, the global financial crisis in the late 2000s, and climate change during, during this decade. Now, it's debatable whether these common interests serve this lofty function anymore. Um, going forward, it's, very, it's less likely that, that there is any one issue that is likely to emerge and have this sort of binding function or to help uh, align um, our interests in the relationship. And my argument is that uh, the US and China have mixed interests on many of these issues and none of them are likely individually or collectively to create a new binding force in the relationship. Uh, simply put, because um, the sources of competition are growing, it's going to be much more difficult for the remaining areas of bilateral cooperation to compensate for the competitive forces, especially when cooperation is hard to elicit. So when thinking about buffers and stabilizers, it's worth concluding with a note about our allies and partners in Europe, because to some degree, their desire not to choose between the United States and China has served as a buffer in the relationship. Many of them sought to ease US-China tensions and lessen the competition. I think that's changing now. Many countries in Asian Europe have been subject to Chinese coercion and predation and are now looking for US support in the face of Chinese actions. Recent changes in, in European and US uh, and EU policies and actions toward Taiwan are notable in this regard. Many of these countries are now working with the United States to various degrees to react to a more aggressive and assertive China. So look, that's a very long and sobering list of challenges at the heart of the US-China relationship. And I feel that it begs the question, what should the United States do about this 
uh, changing state of affairs where the sources of competition in the relationship are growing and changing, the traditional buffers and stabilizers are decaying or inoperative, and domestic politics uh, is uh, coming to the fore in the relationship. And so as the Newhauser lecture, it's incumbent upon me to connect the analytic with the actionable. I think Charlie would have appreciated that, even as he likely would have argued with me about every single point that I make. So given this state of affairs in thinking about connecting the analytic with the actionable and in thinking about US strategy and policy, there are immediately two ideas that come to mind. Competition on the one hand, coexistence on the other. The first competition and specifically strategic competition is all the rage in policy circles uh, since the term was first used in the 2017 national security strategy and the 2018 national defense strategy. The Biden team struck with stuck with strategic competition as the frame for US policy and coexistence now seems to be creeping into their policy vernacular as well, likely due to the fact that there are some common challenges like climate change. But individually and collectively, competition and competition remain relatively underdeveloped in inchoate concepts as a way to guide strategy and policy. And I would argue, I want to argue today that these two ideas and specifically their combination, competitive coexistence, remain the best pathway for US strategy and policy going forward. And it's that a strategy of competitive coexistence is consistent with the changing nature of the relationship as I described above, the diversity of interests at stake for the United States and the tools at our uh, disposal. But before we dive into competitive coexistence and I outline what I mean, I wanna highlight a central tension at the heart of US strategy and policy in China. And it is between security competition on the one hand, which is intensifying and diversifying and interdependence on the other. And here I'm not just talking about economic interdependence, but I'm also talking about technological and ecological interdependence. These two forces, security competition and interdependence, in many ways set the boundaries around US policy toward China as they push us both to adopt policies to deter, constrain, and shape China, but on the other hand, give us some shared interest in a, and a stake in, e, in each other's stability and prosperity. Never before in US history have so many of our interests been so connected with one of our principal security challenges, which also you know, threatens many of our interests. This is even more true for our allies, the tension between competition and interdependence, who see the balance of their interests with China as different than ours. Thus, the tension between these two forces will shape the trajectory of US-China ties and US policy toward China. In some periods, the former will be dominant, and in others, the latter will be dominant. Also, the, his, the, the character of each one of these is going to change over time. Security competition is becoming more militarized and nuclearized. Economic competition itself is rapidly changing as both sides work out how to reduce their exposure to the other. So just as the Cold War had many phases defined by varying agendas and varying degrees of intensity, the US-China relationship and especially US policy toward China 
uh, will have phases, and these phases are going to be driven by changes in the relationship between security competition and interdependence. And it's this perplexing combination of intensifying competition and changing interdependence that has sparked a very searching conversation in the U.S. about how to approach China. And that's what brings me back to my focus today, which is what is competitive coexistence and what does it imply for U.S. strategy and policy? I'm going to explain competition first and then talk about coexistence. Competition itself or strategic competition really is not a strategy, right? It is a condition, an accurate one, that describes the balance of interest between the United States and China. Our interests diverge more than they converge and on a growing set of issues. Also, it's important to keep in mind competition is not enmity or confrontation, and that distinction is important. Talking about U.S.-China's strategic competition does not mean that conflict or confrontation is inevitable. So what does it mean? Well, it means a few things. First, my basic point, the, the first question I want to answer is, what are we competing over? And drawing on my earlier discussion, I'd say that our competition is a fairly classic one between a rising power and an established power. Thus, we're competing over things like regional influence, economic prosperity, the foundations of technological and military advantage, status grievances and legitimacy, and visions of regional and global order, including governance ideas. But look, it's not all bad news because the post-war multilateral order provides a pretty advantageous backdrop against which the emerging U.S.-China competition is going to unfold. In other words, the unfolding competition is emerging against under the shadow of the nuclear revolution, the conditions of complex interdependence, the relative prevalence in democracy, and most basically, the existence of a diversity of widely accepted rules, norms, and institutions created after World War II. All of that plays again, plays to the U.S. advantage. Point number two about competition. There was a wide diversity of ways to compete and a wide diversity of competitive strategies depending on the nature of the challenge. In other words, competition is not just a black box. It's a very variegated concept. It's not just one thing. You don't just compete against somebody. There are many different ways in which you can compete. There are many different varieties of competitive strategies. There are strategies that involve binding or constraining. There are strategies that involve balancing and blunting. There are strategies that involve degrading or hobbling. All of these are going to be needed to address the challenges presented by China to the United States. There's really no one-size-fits-all approach to competition with China. Some competition, such as in the defense and military or cyber realm, is probably going to be zero-sum. In other areas, like international agreements that pressure China to improve its behavior um, on things like climate change, can be positive some. And U.S. policymakers should not shy away from one or the other. It's really about matching solution to problem. So U.S. strategy, our competitive strategies or pursuing strategic competition should be a mix of both antagonistic zero-sum competition and competition that pushes each side to do more and better, perhaps in the provision of development aid or in global investment projects. In other words, 
Some competition, as I said before, could be positive some. And U.S. policy and the overall U.S.-China relationship really is going to be def defined by the balance between these two, you know, these multiple different types of competitive strategies. A third point about competition is that there are many different expressions of it, domestic, unilateral, bilateral, multilateral. You can pursue competitive strategies multiple different ways. You can also pursue them in different sort of vertical slices, meaning there's military competition, diplomatic competition, economic comp competition, technological, informational. So the more diverse the toolkit the U.S. has, the better off we'll be in implementing competition. So I know this probably sounds a little bit like word salad. I gave you a lot of different categories, but the whole point is to create a mental image of your mind that given these various categories, domestic, unilateral, bilateral, on the one hand, military, diplomatic, and economic on the other, one can imagine the development of a matrix of options. Um, and then it's incumbent upon policymakers to think about the risks, the costs, and the opportunities associated with each of them in order to advance US interests. Another point about competition is that competitive strategies are not in opposition to engagement, either conceptually or practically. One of the major weaknesses, I think, of the current U.S. debate about competition is that it's treated as the opposite of engagement, when in fact competition and engagement are really mutually reinforcing. As I've argued elsewhere, including in foreign affairs, America's China strategy hasn't primar primarily been about engagement for over 20 years. There's always been a security hedge. Engagement and dialogue done in a way that's targeted, results-oriented, and often time-limited will need to be a part of any US, uh, a sound US strategy toward China. The sheer size of our economic relationship requires it. Diplomatically, direct dialogue with China allows Washington to signal its priorities, to register its objections, um, clarify our intentions, and puts the onus on Beijing to do the same. So the policy challenge in, is to determine which aspects of engagement to pursue relative to competitive strategies of binding, balancing, or blunting. But in the rush to abandon or criticize engagement, in engagement analysts have often forgotten that engagement is critical to the success of competition, even the riskiest variants of competition. Asian and European leaders are gonna be more reluctant to work with Washington on balancing and blunting strategies if they believe that they're just a Trojan horse for containment. In other words, engagement enhances our ability to build and sustain coalitions needed uh, for competitive strategies. Engagement can also signal where the US and its allies are willing to work with China to manage, if not resolve common challenges. This can reassure both US allies and Chinese leaders about the effectiveness um, or the dedication of US approaches. Now, look, I, I understand historically that engagement strategies haven't always worked and they're certainly not all the same. And I think the US will need to up, update some of its approaches. I think we need to consider the relative value of strategic dialogue where the Chinese use talks to play for time and advantage. I think they need to think about whether or not reassurance works in all contexts. And of course, the risk reward calculus of cooperation.
but just as policymakers want to avoid actions that make confrontation inevitable, I think they also need to avoid engagement policies that embolden China by signaling preemptive restraint or limited uh, American resolve. So engagement deserves a, a very judicious approach and judicious rethink, but it's going to be important for competitive strategies to be maximally effective. Let me give you my uh, fifth point related to competition, which is that there are a variety of tensions and dilemmas at the heart of competition. Um, and it's gonna require a very careful balancing act between competing and multiple and competing interests to get competitive strategies to work. To begin with, an obvious decision is this, right? When thinking about competition, are we seeking relative advantage to keep ahead of the adversary or absolute advantage, denying the adversary a capability? It's a hard question to answer and it's subject to much debate and will probably vary depending if we're talking about security competition, economic competition, technological competition, et cetera. A related challenge is how do you measure competition? During the Cold War, we could, we could count tanks and warheads, but how do you do that today? Economically and technologically, we both cooperate and compete with China. So what is a gain for us uh, and what's a gain for them? You know, in a world that's not bifurcated into NATO and the Warsaw Pact, and we live in a world of complex interdependence, I think the U.S. is going to have to focus much more on the costs and risks associated with our strategies. And what costs and risks are we going to be willing to incur when we implement these competitive strategies? Who's going to pay that cost? And is it worth the presumed benefit, which may not be immediately apparent? And sometimes the benefit or the cost is not in the same domain. So in short, in implementing competitive strategies, there's a variety of challenges. And the question is, where do you draw the line? And these questions of where you draw the line, who pays the cost, who gets the benefit are inherently political. And I think that they're gonna dramatically uh, complicate the domestic politics of competitive coexistence going forward. Final point about competition, and then I'll turn to coexistence, is that, that um, when we talk about the challenges and complexity of um, uh, implementing competitive strategies, the final point I wanna leave you with is that I think competition, I'm sorry, cooperation with China deserves just as much scrutiny as competition. Advocates of cooperation refer to it as a categorical good and they imply that there's this cornucopia of low hanging fruit just waiting to be plucked that could bring the US and China together. But I think it's incumbent upon advocates of this viewpoint to demonstrate where these opportunities exist and how cooperation is possible and how it advances US interests. In the past, as I mentioned, China has used US requests for cooperation to play for time and to manage American expectations more than they have to solve problems. Um, Beijing then encourages and often coerces payments or trade-offs with other priorities in order for the U.S. to get cooperation. Too often, also what passes is bilateral cooperation is really just parallel actions with minimal coordination and limited value. Also, keep in mind, just because China cooperated with us in the past doesn't mean it's going to do so going forward, given its growing relative power and its chaining interests. 
My broader point is simply that just as we scrutinize competition and we look at the challenges associated with it, we also need to take a hard look at cooperation, which I see is decidedly mixed. The record of US-China on, uh, on cooperation is mixed and it's questionable going forward. Now, China continues to see cooperation on global challenges like climate change as a gift to us and the Chinese talk about it and often link it to the broader relationship. And I think that um, you know, that position by the Chinese is going to continue to complicate our ability um, to build out the cooperative aspects of our relationship. But having, having considered and sort of dissected the many challenges associated with competition, it's the variegated concept, it has lots of risks and costs, it's hard to measure. I also wanna talk about coexistence. And I want to remind listeners in 1974, the prophetic statement by Henry Kissinger, quote, the challenge of our time is to reconcile the reality of competition with the imperative of coexistence. Now, paraphrasing Kissinger in this same speech, he argues, quote, there can be no peaceful international order. There can be no international stability. There can be no global economic prosperity unless the United States, and in this case, China, find a way, find a basis for a stable relationship. So the question is, how do we reconcile the reality of competition with the imperative of coexistence? And I want to argue that the imperative of co coexistence, the basis of coexistence as a counterpart to competition at the heart of U.S. strategy springs from three realities. First, and perhaps most obviously, is the reality of our deep and complex interdependence. Our two-way trade is over a half a trillion dollars. China's America's largest goods trading partner, our third largest export market, accounting for over 1 million U.S. jobs, and the largest source of U.S. imports. U.S. service exports are booming as well. Before COVID, China was the largest source of foreign students studying at U.S. universities. U.S foreign direct investment in China between 1990 and December of 2020 was almost $300 billion. Now, as China opens up its financial services sector and capital markets, U.S. portfolio investment in China is rapidly growing in both debt and equities. And any major U.S. investor in public markets is now exposed to China either directly or indirectly, even if they don't buy any Chinese stocks or bonds. Now, of course, importantly, it's not just U.S. economic interdependence that matters, but the rest of the world's links to China. China is now the largest trading partner of two-thirds of the global economy, meaning over 100 countries, many of whom the U.S. needs to work with if it's going to effectively compete with China. But beyond trade and investment and finance, as Joe Nye, Professor Joe Nye of Harvard has argued, there's also ecological interdependence. Air pollution knows no boundaries, and our fates are clearly tied on issues such as climate change, which was brought to the fore last week at the COP26 forum. Of course, there's technological interdependence as well. Just look at the iPhone supply chain and, and how many iPhones uh, parts are manufactured and assembled in China. China itself is deeply dependent on foreign manufacturers and designers of semiconductors. American semiconductor companies depend on sales to China for revenue and the ability to invest in research and de development. 
And to make another obvious point about interdependence, the events of the last 18 months and the outbreak of the novel coronavirus have brought home to all of us how quickly disease can spread from one country to another and the implications for literally the fate of the world. But of course, geopolitical implications of interdependence are complex, right? What does interdependence mean for geopolitics? And critics will argue that historically, deep economic ties have not stopped war, most often citing the outbreak of World War I. Are they right? Probably. But what I'm arguing today is not that this interdependence can, will, or should stop war, as normal Norman Angel famously argued before 1914, but that this interdependence can increase the costs of conflict and provide incentives for restraint and caution on both sides. So the question is, will the cost of action exceed the benefit, especially when the cost is high and the benefit is uncertain? Uh, a factor that the US military can influence. So in short, my proposition is interdependence, economic, ecological, technological, can both stabilize and even reinforce deterrence in the right situations. In other words, deterrence is not all about just punishment and denial. Interdependence can play a part in that equation. Interdependence can reinforce deterrence, which is a central component of coexistence. But of course, um, unlike the US-Soviet experience, a lot of that is changing now. And the second driver of coexistence is our militarized security competition, the growing risk of conflict. And unlike with the US-Soviet experience, nukes has historically been at the background of the US-China experience. Now they're moving to the fore, right? moving to the fore. China, according to the Pentagon's most recent report, is planning on quadrupling the size of its nuclear arsenal to some thousand warheads by 2013, and most worrisome, moving to a launch on warning posture. It's developed a nascent nuclear triad and is even playing around with exotic hypersonic weapons to to deliver nuclear weapons. So really the US-China relationship has entered a new nuclear age and the nuclear shadow casts a large and darker pall over the relationship. And look, the changing nature of this threat obviously raises questions about the U.S.-China relationship, whether we have the tools necessary to manage this increasingly militarized and nuclearized relationship. And I think there's a lot more work that can and should be done on risk reduction and crisis management. And I hope the two presidents talk about that in their meeting today. And all of this gives new meaning to coexistence. It raises the uncomfortable realities about competition in the nuclear age, and specifically the issue of vulnerability to nuclear weapons. Where does it exist? How much of it to tolerate? And that is certainly a hard truth, perhaps the hardest of them all. But that hard truth also reminds me of a paradox of coexistence that Kissinger pointed out decades ago in that same 1974 presentation. He said, quote, paradox confuses our perception of the problem of coexistence. If peace is pursued to the exclusion of any other goal, obviously other values will be compromised and perhaps lost. But if unconstrained rivalry in the nuclear age leads to nuclear conflict, those values, along with 
everything else and other interests will be destroyed in the resulting Holocaust. I think those are very wise words. A third and final pillar of coexistence that I'll talk about briefly and then sum up is the question of regime type and regime change. As US, China US and Chinese political values differ dramatically, especially as Xi Jinping seeks to assert more control over different aspects of society. Um, some have called what Xi Jinping is trying to create at home exquisite authoritarianism. At the same time, the US and China are not involved in a Soviet style existential battle over democracy and capitalism versus communism and socialism. As noted before, there certainly is an ideological competition and both sides are taking actions that the other see as undermining their political values and challenging political stability. But the practical effect of both sides is intensifying this area of competition. So in other words, what I'm saying is I don't think it's in the US interest to engineer regime change in China. Historically, we're bad at it. It's backfired many times. Attempting to do it undermines our ability to work with China. It broadens distrust and resistance to the United States among most elements of Chinese society and basically results in greater support for the Chinese Communist Party as many people in China rally around the regime. But perhaps most importantly, pursuing regime change would alienate many of our allies and partners who don't support it and whom we need to cooperate with China to cooperate on China issues in a variety of ways. In other words, pursuing regime change blunts the most important tool in our strategic toolkit. Thus, such an approach would isolate the United States at the very time we need to work with others and it intensifies as the already deep rivalry with China. Instead, Washington should focus on changing Chinese behavior, not on um, engineering regime change. The United States sh certainly shouldn't ignore China's egregious actions and crackdown at home or abroad, nor should US officials pretend that we are indifferent to the harmful character of the Chinese regime. Differences over ideas of governance, both domestic and international, um, are clearly a central area of competition for influence. But Washington really needs to stay focused on confronting the regime's threatening behaviors instead of launching a, a crusade against the CCP itself. This means prioritizing the creation of an international environment that collectively balances, binds, deters, shapes Chinese, um, China's choices about its behavior. So where does all of this leave us? And with that, let me turn to my concluding thoughts. Having outlined the logic of competitive coexistence as a framing strategy for US choices, it's incumbent to point out an important feature of competitive coexistence and a controversial one. Competitive coexistence is, involves a big change in US strategy because it is a, it, competitive coexistence is a process. It's not a permanent achievement. In other words, it's a steady state and not an end state. As Kurt Campbell wrote a year ago, Great power politics is not a problem to be solved. It is a condition to be managed. It's a process. Competitive coexistence is a process and one that it's going to require constant efforts across the diversity of issues uh, using competitive strategies as well as 
intensive consultation and interaction and negotiation with China, unilaterally, bilaterally, and multilaterally across a variety of issues, military, economic, and diplomatic. Such, as big, uh, uh, such a steady state strategy is a big intellectual leap for many in the United States uh, because we as a country have traditionally focused on end states. And we often believe that the character of a country's leadership matters more than anything else. But developing and sustaining a domestic political consensus around competitive coexistence, around a steady state, as opposed to an end state, is going to be a daunting, strat uh, a daunting challenge, but it's a necessary one. Because US-China ties today really do have a feeling of the early stages of the Cold War, perceptions of hardening fast, neither Washington nor Beijing has really fully developed its goals, means, or mechanisms for this long-term competition. And to be very precise, we really don't know what each other's boundaries or tolerances are. Um, and we're probing and testing the other at this very moment. And like the 40s and the 50s, U.S. judgments and U.S. actions are subject to intense political pressure. I imagine the same would be true in Beijing. In such a context, the critical task for American leaders and strategists is to ensure that American strategy and policies are based on neither our worst fears nor our most uh, naive hopes. Ultimately, what matters is whether Washington can alter Beijing's actions and conduct. Such an approach uh, may make tactical progress at first. It's not going to um, change the brutal character or even the revisionist impulses of the Chinese Communist Party. But as long as the United States can shift how Beijing defines its interests and, is, and how it pursues them, the United States can protect the broader liberal international order. And that's why the totality of competitive coexistence coming into sharper focus, using a diversity of competitive strategies, buttress with serious and sustained interactions with China to deter coercive, aggressive, and predatory behaviors while encouraging and influencing um, China through dialogue and interaction uh, is the most uh, appropriate and comprehensive approach. Perhaps we need to update Kissinger's 1974 statement. In other words, in 2021, the challenge of our time with China is to reconcile the imperative of competition with the reality of coexistence, not the opposite. Thank you very much. Evan, thank you so much for um, an extraordinarily wide ranging and thoughtful summary of the challenges facing the United States in its relationship with China and hints of um, some of the solutions to those challenges. Uh, we have a host of questions, but I'm going to uh, exercise my prerogative and, and start with, with two. Uh, before I do that, let me, let me just say uh, um, from my perch here at Harvard, I was particularly struck by your uh, comment about um, the proponents of cooperation needing to uh, justify themselves 
uh, or the proponents of engagement. I can't remember how you framed it. We in the university are, uh, in universities in general, are among those who, who claim, who make the claims, to use your, your phrase, that there is a cornucopia of low-hanging fruit to be grasped. Um, and I think we, we, uh, we may need to think more about justifying the arguments that, that, that we are making. This is, of course, something that is quite new to those of us who grew up in an era of engagement where uh, grasping for that cornucopia of low-hanging fruit was self-evidently the policy to be pursued, and that has dramatically changed. But anyways, let me, let me, um, let me pose two uh, questions just to get the conversation um, going. Um, if competitive coexistence as a strategy differs from earlier approaches to strategy in that it is a process, not an end state, can we speak of a static or long-term goal of, of the policy? That is, is there an end game of this policy that, that, that goes beyond simply um, uh, uh, not, not, not is, is peace the only end game here? Or can we say more about what the goal of the strategy is and that will therefore shape which of the various measures you outlined are, are, uh, are to be selected and which are to be rejected? That's a big question. Maybe I'll let you answer that and then come back with a second question. So the question, Michael, is can we speak of a static or long-term goal? Is that the... Yeah, I think so. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, so I think we can. And I think it really comes down to the static or long-term goal is about uh, deterring and pre preventing behavior on the part of China that we believe is inimical to our security, our economic, our diplomatic interests uh, in Asia and globally. And where possible trying to um, uh, elicit from China more and better cooperation on um, you know, a variety of different uh, shared challenges. I just think that the, the, that's, that's designed to be a very general statement because I don't think you can identify or lay out sort of a one size fits all type of um, you know, approach. In other words, what you need need to do in the military sphere, the balance between, you know, competitive and cooperative strategies may be different than in the military sphere than on questions of, of global governance. But sure, I, th I mean, I think you can sort of, my point is that you can sort of point, you can point to a trajectory of U.S. policy, but you can't say, okay, that's a very specific end state that we want to get at because the world's changing, America's changing, China's changing. And so my point is we really need to focus on behavior and changing and shaping behavior as opposed to seeking one particular end state. Like we want Beijing, you know, to be like that. So the, 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 I'll just respond with one quick comment, which is to go back to probably the very the, the first or second sentence of your presentation, which was to, to draw the, the Cold War analogy. Um, this is probably one area where the new Cold War will necessarily differ from, from the old Cold War. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, it depends on what happens with domestic politics in the United States. I, you know, I mentioned at the end, I think one of the challenges to implementing a strategy of competitive coexistence is building and sustaining a domestic coalition to do so, 
right? And in particular, the question of uh, regime change. And can you build a strategy that has as one of its pillars, you know, explicitly rejecting, you know, engineering, trying to bring about regime change. Now, that doesn't mean that the U.S. shouldn't uh, talk openly and forthrightly about uh, Chinese human rights practices, which I firmly believe that they should, right? And I think we can do that uh, and still maintain other aspects of our approach. Um, but I think it's, you know, that question is really going to affect the domestic political consensus issue. Um, and I think that, that that's going to be a real problem for competitive coexistence going forward. Thanks. You're, I'll turn now. I have more questions, but I'm going to turn to our audience. Um, and I'll start with, with a very timely one. I suspect I know the answer that you will give, but uh, I want to give uh, Yang Si, who is a reporter from Voice of America, uh, a chance to ask the question, uh, President Biden, and uh, we'll be meeting uh, China's Xi tonight. Uh, do you think there is an opportunity for the two countries to reset the relationship, um, changing many of the assumptions that you you made in your presentation? Uh, that's my addition to his question. Yeah. So the simple answer is no, I don't think so. Um, in fact, the Biden administration has been quite clear publicly that um, a, a reset is neither, neither desirable nor feasible. I think the best that you can say is that their intention is to use the meaning to align expectations. Um, and I think their concern is that the Chinese side wants a reset, right? There's a lot of talk about going back to cooperation as the center of the relationship, not competition, right? Some Chinese scholars even still talk about sort of a new model or uh, of great power relations or avoiding the Thucydides trap. And I think the U.S. is in a very different place. And I think that that's not a political, that's not a statement about American politics. I think that's a statement about American strategy and the, the um, shift that's taken place across American society about the nature of the challenge posed by uh, uh, Xi Jinping's China. Over to you, Michael. Thanks. So let's uh, let's stick with the domestic political side for a minute. My colleague Minier from Boston uh, University asks: U.S.-China relations have been multifaceted and involve many interests and actors, including scholars, scientists, and NGOs. It now seems that in both Washington and Beijing, hardcore strategists and ideologues have dominated the discourse and policy discussions. Are all the other voices silenced? Or are there remaining roles for them to play and have some voice in shaping the coexistence and competition scenario? A question I'm sure of great interest to many of the people on this yeah. call. Well, that's a wonderful question. And uh, Min, thank you for that question. I wanna um, highlight to everybody that Min is a wonderful uh, professor at BU who just uh, joined us at Georgetown uh, last week for a conference, and she's really done the path-breaking work on the domestic sources of BRI. And I think it's some of the most important work looking at the domestic sources of foreign policy in China. So um, Min, thanks for the question. So I have a slightly different assessment of the domestic politics in Washington and Beijing. I don't think that the debate in Washington and Beijing is driven by a, a, a set of ideologues. Um, now, of course, those with strong views tend to speak louder 
and are overheard over others. Um, but as I mentioned in my section of the presentation on domestic politics, what I see is a, a, a very broad shift uh, across many constituencies in the United States. Uh, public opinion, of course, Congress, the business community, NGOs, and even universities. So I, I don't think it's a, I don't think that the debate in the United States is about a bunch of very loud ideologues dominating over everybody else. I think it's uh, rather several different constituencies in American society reassessing uh, um, China and Chinese behavior um, and the opportunities to work with China based on changes uh, that are going on within the PRC itself, right? Look no further than the NGO law, right? It was nothing that the United States did that made American NGOs that work on environmental rights or women's rights or poverty allevi alleviation have to cancel their projects in China. It was because of Xi Jinping's implementation of the NGO law. And so I'd like to think that the debate about China in the United States will remain as diverse uh, you know, as ever. And that I would encourage you or others that may you know, disagree with quote the ideologues to continue to articulate uh, your views. I think there's a lot of space in the debate, um, but I think there's a real argument to be made that the shift in US opinion is based less on sort of values and ideology and more on changes in behavior. Over to you, Michael. Thank you. So let's pivot now to uh, some questions of economics that I'm going to try to combine a couple of questions, in particular, uh, two that came in from Lawrence Sullivan and from uh, An Angel Gallego Marcos joining us from Madrid, uh, both of whom uh, note that uh, foreign investments into China Chinese exports, American business interests in China seem to be accelerating despite new regulations, economic slowdowns, and uh, new uh, rhetoric coming from American business leaders. Um, how does that, uh, you, you may disagree with that assessment of the situation. Um, yeah. So, so if, if that's the case, please do it. If you, if you think that their assessment of the situation is accurate, how can that be framed in relation to the processes you were describing and the strategies you're proposing? Uh, so it's a very good question. Um, so number one on the data. So I see the data as much more mixed. Uh, if you actually look at FDI data, it is plateaued quite a bit, um, you know, from some of the peaks of the past. So yes, American companies continue to invest in China. Um, there are some assessments that the, the foreign direct investment will start trailing off as the effect of COVID kicks in. We'll, we'll see if that happens. Um, but a second point on the data is uh, you really have to look sector by sector. And there are some sectors that I, th that I think are increasingly seeing China as very risky or very problematic. So while I expect the US to continue to, US companies to continue to you know, invest in China, the question is whether or not their investment in China continues to be a majority share or a substantial share of their overall global investment. And what we hear in the United States is that investment in China is really plateauing and that companies are looking to diversify uh, because of China risk, uh, COVID and otherwise, to invest in you know, other, other destinations. So Looking at FDI year on year is very difficult, and we really only have a couple years of data to look at to determine whether or not the current 
data functions as a trend, you really have to look um, more broadly than that. But even independent of that, even though, you know, there will always be American businesses doing business in China. And, you know, to the extent that that doesn't undermine American, you know, prosperity or result in the loss of, you know, IP, um, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, the challenge for policymakers in the United States is to figure out um, how much interdependence uh, it, or if there are types of interdependence that pose risk for the United States. And so I think that there's, we're just starting a conversation now about um, how much FDI should continue. Um, for example, the, the US government is playing around with the idea of adopting uh, review mechanisms for outbound FDI. So before a company can invest in a sector in China, that that has to be reviewed like Chinese investment coming into the United States. And so I'm not convinced that the, you know, the FDI going into China is going to continue in the coming years if these new outbound FDI investment screening mechanisms uh, exist. So I think that we're in a very transitional period when it comes to economic ties with China. Um, but I've never been an advocate for decoupling. I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's in our interests. But I do think some selective disengagement in sectors that pose a particular national security risk are in the cards. And I think for a variety of reasons, politics, health, otherwise, American companies are increasingly reassessing their exposure to China. Uh, Evan, it was, as I mentioned, an extremely wide ranging talk. There was one, uh, uh, one, one subject, one word, quite notable by its absence. And my brilliant colleague, Arez Manella, also noticed that. And the word is Taiwan. Yeah. How does it, how does it fit into your thinking? This is his, Arez's question. How does it fit into your thinking about competitive coexistence? How dangerous is the situation right now? And to which I would add, uh, what does a comp competitive coexistence policy strategy look like in a, in, with respect to Taiwan? Yeah, uh, great question. And uh, I didn't mention Taiwan. I didn't mention a lot of things specifically, uh, largely because I wanted to keep the talk at 30,000 feet to sort of be a conceptual innovation. Um, but it's not because I don't care about Taiwan or the people on Taiwan or my friends in Taiwan. I didn't talk about you know, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, or Tibet either, um, all areas where there've been extraordinarily repressive actions on the part of the PRC, and I hope we continue to protest it. Um, so what, is, what does competitive coexistence mean for Taiwan? Well, it means a couple things. Number one, the US is gonna need to individually and with Taiwan um, get even more serious about deterrence, right? Acquiring the capabilities to deter Chinese um, um, aggression and military coercion against Taiwan. Number two, it's gonna be getting serious about diversification um, and resilience. In other words, making sure that Taiwan uh, reduces to the extent possible and feasible its extraordinary economic vulnerability to the mainland. It means the US and Taiwan getting very serious about resilience, right? The whole sort of essence of the US strategy toward Taiwan is to increase deterrence by making sort of Taiwan, as Lee Kuan Yew pulled, called it, the poison shrimp, right? You can swallow it, but it creates so much indigestion, it's not worth it, right? Make Taiwan such a hard nut to crack. And that's why I think more and better military investments for deterrence, 
diversification, resilience at home are going to be a central feature of um, U.S. policy going forward. But there's also a consultation and diplomatic dimension to it, too. It means the United States articulating to China um, what exactly our one China policy means in the context of um, you know, the three communiques and the TRA and the six assurances. And what I, what I mean by that specifically is reminding the, the Chinese that we really do not support uh, independence of Taiwan and we would take actions uh, to prevent that and that we would not welcome unilateral changes uh, you know, by either side, Taiwan or uh, Beijing. And that as we enter into a period, you know, um, you know, a period of change in Taiwan. There's an election in, you know, election in January 2024. So a very active election season in 2023. And that when the people of Taiwan um, pick their new leader, that the United States is going to be very actively involved in making sure that any new leader on Taiwan invests in preserving cross-strait peace and stability, which is a long-standing American interest. And American conversations with mainland China about Taiwan and about what our policy is and is not uh, is going to be, um, you know, just as important as the uh, as the deterrence uh, equation. Thanks, Evan. We're we're just about at time, but I have one more question that I'd like to ask. It's uh, it's a great question, but it's also a question that that is personally very very important to me, and I think. Um, the, 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 the asker, uh, Li Yishen, Yishen Li. Uh, I'm going to combine their question with a question from Wen Cheng. Uh, Wen Cheng asks about the role that ordinary people from the two countries can play in the development of future relationships between China and the United States. And Yishen, Li Yishen's question is a different one, but as I said, just so important, often missing in the discussion of competitive coexistence are the implications for Chinese Americans and ordinary, well-intentioned Chinese nationals studying, working, and living in the United States. What's your view on the best approaches for protecting the rights and interests of these two communities? Uh, thank you, uh, Michael. I'm glad that you asked. Um, you know, I think that uh, historically speaking, I think the, the, the data is quite clear that people-to-people -people ties across dimensions of American society and Chinese society, these have been a, a very, very important pillar in building the relationship, stabilizing the relationship and growing the relationship. And it's added to both countries in important ways, just as Chinese Americans have been such an important dimension of American uh, growth and development and a really vibrant part of our society. Um, one of the things that we've done at Georgetown is we've launched a three-part webinar series. We've done two of them. We'll do another one in early December, looking at how to conceptualize people-to-people -people ties under the new conditions of strategic competition. So what competitive coexistence uh, would mean for people-to-people -people ties is uh, to rebuild them. Now, of course, we have to rebuild them after COVID. Um, anyway, um, but rebuild them uh, in ways that appreciate uh, how uh, the people of both countries uh, need to uh, better communicate in order to better understand, in order to avoid um, the kind of uh, images or othering of each other that can lead 
to enmity and confrontation. You know, one of the terms that I used over and over in my presentation is we want to avoid a situation where competition evolves into enmity and confrontation, right? And I think that one of the important fire breaks on that process is people to people ties uh, between both countries. Educational ties have always been an important part of that. Um, at Georgetown, I'm sure at Harvard and lots of other American universities. And I think it's gonna be important um, to ensure that, that these ties go forward. One of the most vibrant aspects of the relationship that has flourished in the last decade is exchanges between artists, visual artists and performing artists. And Alison Friedman um, of UNC just did a wonderful presentation on, uh, on this during our webinar uh, at Georgetown. So I think we need to, you know, it's going to be incumbent on all of us to, to re-energize our networks and reinvest in these kinds of ties because we need to keep them alive during COVID. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I spend many evenings each week on Zoom, um, Zoom meetings, much to my wife's chagrin, um, in consultations with Chinese friends and scholars from you know, various think tanks and universities, making sure that we're continually communicating with one another. And it's only through that kind of communication that we can avoid worst case assessments. Um, we can avoid the accumulation of distrust that I think um, would make it difficult to sustain the delicate balancing act that is a strategy like competitive coexistence. Uh, Evan, do you, want to, do you want to say a word about the issue of the Chinese American community? Well, as I said in the, in the opener, they, they play an important part of American society. Um, and I think that, that um, I'm very concerned about the racism that they've experienced under COVID. Um, that combined with the deterioration in the US-China relationship, I think is a challenge that our policymakers uh, probably more in local communities than at the national level, but really both uh, need to be addressing. Uh, as academics, we need to make sure that as professors, um, I'm certainly committed both in my classroom and in the Georgetown community more broadly to have basically zero tolerance policies toward any, that kind of prejudice, but also make sure that on our campus, we're having a very active dialogue about the US-China relationship, uh, about COVID, uh, to make sure that there isn't you know, misunderstanding about these issues and to make sure that the, the voices and the contributions of Chinese Americans are part of the conversation and are valued and respected. Thank you. Thanks so much, Evan. I, I, you are, you are the speaker, uh, and and so it's not for me to speak. But I do want to just echo those comments. Um, we are at Harvard as well, uh, uh, very aware and constantly trying to make efforts both to uh, demonstrate in language and indeed to our visitors from China who are here engaged in studying research that that you are welcome here, uh, and also to indicate an absolute rejection of uh, anti-AAPI, Asian-American uh, uh, violence and racism. Um, we are at time. I think we, 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 we must stop. Uh, let me just uh, 
this is one of our, our distinguished lectures of the year. And so it's perhaps inappropriate for me to plug an event, but like Evan, I also am on Zoom quite late at night. And for those of you who are interested, uh, we're gonna take a little short break here at the Fairbanks Center and in two and a half hours, uh, come back with a session on cross-straits relations one year after Biden's election, uh, live from the Fairbanks Center and the Legislative UN in Taipei. So if this is of interest to you, please uh, uh, go off and have a meal and then come back. But the important thing that remains for me to do is to thank uh, Professor Evan Medeiros for uh, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, Neuhauser lecture. Um, I too am, am sorry that we aren't able to now uh, continue this over uh, uh, refreshments and wine, uh, but I will make good on the invitation to you and to uh, Charlie's relatives. Uh, let me let me just close by by uh, going back to where you began with Charlie Newhouser and his values and his legacy. Uh, this is an an enormously important topic to which you bring both a great deal of academic knowledge but also a great deal of practical experience. We are very, very grateful to you for serving as this year's lecturer, for sharing your wisdom and ideas with us, and for uh, living up to and embodying uh, the values that, that uh, I agree Charlie would have stood for. Thank you so much, Evan. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to all. Uh, good night, uh, and we hope to see you again soon at another Fairbanks Center event.